Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Fort Caroline. I'm so glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, my name is Stuart. I get the privilege of serving as lead pastor here. Uh, and you could be anywhere on this kind of rainy, dreary, muggy Sunday morning, but you're here. And I'm thankful for that. Um, and I don't think it's an accident. I think the Lord has something he wants to say to each of us uh, here uh, this morning. And so uh, if you have your Bible, uh, would you open up to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And uh, while you're turning there, I, I want to say I, I love this time of year. Does anybody else just love Christmas? I mean, this, I'm all in on this. I talked to a brother. I won't out him. I won't tell you his name uh, who told me this morning he doesn't like this time of year. And I don't get it. I don't get it, frankly. You know who you are. The Lord bless you. I love you. Um, but I'm hoping the Lord changes your heart. Uh, I love, I love the, whole, the whole thing, the decorations. I love the, the, the traditions. I love uh, uh, the kind of routine of it all. I love how... You know, kind of everything is the same. Year after year after year, Christmas is the same. We get the same uh, traditions. We get the same experience. We get the same routine over and over and over again. And there's a, uh, something comforting about that, I think. Something, uh, the centering about that, how we get to come back uh, to the beginning um, at, at Christmas. And so uh, we're going to do that over the next four weeks. We're starting a series uh, in Advent. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through the book of Luke uh, we're going to work through the Gospel of Luke's account of uh, the Christmas story of Jesus' birth and the announcement of his birth, what we'll look at this morning, of, his, um, uh, uh, of the shepherds, the angels, and all of those things. That's what we're after uh, this morning. And so uh, we're going to start in uh, Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26 this morning, so skip a little bit ahead. We're going to begin in verse 26. I'm going to read the passage, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his king, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary, not surprisingly, was puzzled. In verse 34, she says this, she says, how will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37, for nothing, it says, will be impossible with God. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he comes. We thank you that he uh, saves. We thank you for the fact that he came for us. And as we look at this announcement this morning, as we look at this text, Lord, would you encourage our hearts with it? Would you remind us of all that you've done for us? Would you remind us of 
God, what awaits us as well and the future that you have for us. God, would you encourage our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a text about an announcement, right? So this, that's what's happening here is, is the angel Gabriel has shown up and he has an announcement to make. And, and he wants uh, Mary to know what's coming. And this kind of sets the stage for the entire uh, birth story, the entire announcement of Jesus, the entire uh, kickoff to his ministry and what he has come uh, to do. If you're a note taker this morning, the main idea of our sermon uh, this morning is that the promised Savior came in humility but he's going to return in glory. And what I hope that we'll see this morning is that this announcement isn't just about one arrival of Jesus, of Jesus, but about two arrivals of Jesus. I hope we'll see this morning that Jesus didn't just come the first time in the manger, but he's also coming a second time. And I hope we'll see the con- contrast between the two of these things. And I think there's something that we can learn about this Advent season, about this waiting season that Pastor Matt was talking about in this story. And so first, Jesus's humble arrival. The circumstances of Jesus's family and his birth show us the humility with which Jesus comes. This is such a fascinating announcement. The, the, the Luke, the author of this text, is he's being very deliberate to try to show us how Jesus came. Just before this text, and just for the sake of time, we didn't read through it all. But just before this text, this angel Gabriel has also announced to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby. And Zechariah uh, hears from Gabriel, and Zechariah's in the temple in Jerusalem. He's a priest, and he's working in the temple, and he meets this angel. And this angel tells him, hey, you're going to have a son. Even though your wife is barren, even though you haven't been able to have children, you're going to have a son. And Gabriel's, uh, uh, Zechariah's in disbelief over this and kind of questions the angel. And so if you remember the story, he's actually struck mute as a result of his disbelief in this moment. And so right after this story that uh, Elizabeth is going to have a son who goes on to be John the Baptist, we'll talk about him next week. Right after this story in Luke, then Luke tells us about Gabriel making a similar announcement to Mary, Right? And the structure, if you look closely at this, the structure of these two announcements is identical. They're the same order of events, same order of operations, if you will, happen. And we, as the readers of this text, are supposed to go, hey, look, these are the same thing. These are, sim- these are meant to be compared and contrasted so that we can learn something from them. And when you do that compare and contrast, you find that they're totally, while they have the same structure, they have totally different circumstances, Right? So Zechariah is in Jerusalem, which is the cultural and and financial center of this region. It is the pinnacle city of Israel. Not only is it in Jerusalem, but it's in the temple that he meets Gabriel, the, the absolute center of Jewish life. This announcement comes to a man who is a man of status, who is a man of prestige. There's pre- the priests in that day were, were held in high esteem. They were well regarded. They were people that others looked up to and aspired to be and wanted to be like. This, this, this announcement, it comes to Mary totally differently, right? It comes totally differently. We, we read that it comes in Nazareth, it says, which the text has to explain. Is, it says it's in the Galilee region. Why does it say that? Because most people wouldn't even know where Nazareth is. Such a small and insignificant town that, that the, the Luke has to explain to his readers where it is in the region. <coughs> Excuse me. Not only that, it doesn't come in any special place. In fact, the location that Mary is when she meets Gabriel 
isn't even listed. It's, it's just a, probably in her home or in a, uh, outside in, in, in the market. It could have been anywhere, right? It's so insignificant, it's not even mentioned. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to get this tickle out of my throat, I promise. Uh, going, going further, right? So in, in first century Judaism, men would be esteemed way above women. Women were kind of treated as second-class citizens. And here we've got Zechariah, this male with a high position, getting this announcement. And it's contrasted with Mary, a girl who, who could have been as young as 12. She was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 16, most likely given the Jewish marriage customs of the time. Someone with no status, no lineage is given for her. No background, no, no reason why she should be treated as special. So in this contrast, we're meant to see, hey, this announcement to Zechariah, this is to a, a mighty family, to an important people in an important place. And this announcement to Mary is to lowly people in humble places with no status. And this sets the stage for how Jesus' birth will take place. It confounds expectations. The Jewish people expected their Messiah, their Savior, which is what Jesus becomes, they expect him to come in glory and splendor. They expect him to be this conquering hero, and yet he comes to this poor, working-class family in the backwoods of Nazareth. If you need a movie reference for this, right? These are not the McAllisters from Home Alone, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? I live in a mansion in Chicago, and somehow dad can afford a trip for 15 people to Paris at Christmas time, right? This is not them. That's Zechariah's family, okay? Jesus' family, those are, the, those are the Cratchits, okay, from a Christmas carol, right? They, they don't have two pennies to rub together. They're just working class people just trying to make it. And God says to these people, these humble people, these lowly people, that's who I'm going to send my son. That's who I'm going to send the Savior of the world through. The Jewish people were looking for a savior. They did expect someone to come. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, says this. This is the Lord talking to David, making a promise to him. He says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me in my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, it says. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises to King David that someone will sit on the throne from his lineage forever. And he says forever three times in this short passage to emphasize the surety of this, that he's really going to do it. He's really going to put a king on this throne Forever. And so we can understand why the people of Israel were looking for a great king, can't we? I mean, this is the promise that they're working from. This is the expectation that they have. This is obviously going to be someone with power and majesty and might and splendor who's going to come in and overthrow the government and take over for the people of Israel. And yet, that's not what God does, is it? He sends Jesus in humility 
in a manger, as we'll see in weeks to come, with nothing, quietly, without a big announcement, just a family alone at night in a town far from home. Why does God do this? Why? Why, why send Jesus in this manner? Why not send Jesus in some magnificent way? Why not make a huge announcement that the whole world sees? Why not have all the pomp and circumstance that should come with a royal birth? I mean, God could still accomplish his purposes if he, if he did this with a, ma- with a you know, mighty arrival. Why does God do it this way? Here's what I think. I think God does it this way. Jesus came in humility because Jesus came for us. Jesus comes in humility because Jesus comes for us. The people of Israel were looking for someone to overthrow a government and overthrow kingdoms. And Jesus said, I have a bigger mission than that. I want to overthrow Satan, sin, and death who rule over your hearts. I'm coming for you. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, this is Jesus' mission statement, if you will. He says this, he says, the Son of Man came, why? To seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come to establish a government. Jesus didn't come to build some earthly kingdom. Jesus came to save, to save you, to save me, save the people of Israel, save any and all who might believe in him. Every human being who's ever lived has been born with a problem, right? Every one of us has been born into the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the earth. The the Bible calls Satan the prince of the air. The Bible calls him in another place the God of this age. In other words, Satan has dominion, has authority over the world in in a very real, significant way. Because of Satan's influence on the world and because of the uh, uh, corrupting effect of sin on our hearts, we are all stuck in prison kind of in this satanic kingdom, if you will, not to be too dramatic. But we are bound by our sin. To make matters worse, we're not great people either, amen? We, we, we mess up all the time. We, we, we fall short of the standard that God has for us. We fall short of the way he's called us to live. And because our God is a God of justice, those failures, those shortcomings, our sin, they have to be paid for, don't they? And Jesus says, I'm not going to let those people pay the price themselves. I'm going to come and pay it on their behalf. His humble birth leads to a humble life. Jesus goes through life living the life that you and I should have lived. He, in a, in a very real way, lives in our place. He doesn't just die in our place. He lives in our place. He follows God's laws in the ways that we don't. He is faithful in the ways that we are unfaithful. He honors God when we dishonor God. He lives a perfect life in our place, but then he does indeed die in our place as well. At the end of his humble life, a life where he never got rich, a life where he achieved fame, only at the very, very, very end of his life, last year, year and a half or so of his life, he achieved fame as word of his miracles began to spread. And he goes to a cross and he dies in the most humble way imaginable, the most humiliating way imaginable. Those words humility, humble, they have the same root word just of lowliness. He goes to a cross, he's killed, and his perfect sacrifice, the Bible says, pays the price for our sins and failures 
and shortcomings. But then he gets up. He walks out of the grave three days later alive. And he ascends to heaven, the Bible says, and he sits there even now, right now, the Bible says, interceding on our behalf as a go-between between us and God. And the Bible is very clear that if we put our faith in Jesus, if we believe that what happened on the cross happened for us, if we believe that he really walked out of a grave alive, we turn from our sin and we say, I'm going to follow him instead. The Bible says we are welcomed into this kingdom of God for all eternity. Why does Jesus come in such a humble manner? Because he wants us to come to, uh, to him. Why does Jesus come in such a humble manner? Because he wants us to come to him. And it's much easier to approach a humble Jesus who's lived as we lived, who's uh, felt the world that we've felt, who's dealt with the temptations and struggles that we have felt with. Jesus gets us. He gets us in a way that nobody else does. And I'm convinced that his humility and his uh, lowliness makes him more approachable to you and I, right? What's the most famous person you've ever met? I mean, just think for a minute. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Everybody's probably encountered some celebrity of some kind, whether it's a local celebrity or uh, maybe a sports star that you know. I ran into a, uh, this was, uh, I guess, Friday, Thursday night. I ran into a former Florida State running back who also played for the Jaguars, and I was just starstruck. Nobody else in the whole place knew who he was, but I was like, oh, you know, my wife's making fun of me. But who's the most famous person that you've ever met? I think for me, it's Lee Corso, another college football uh, personality. Lee Corso is on the set of Game Day. He's been doing that for uh, 30 years now, almost to the day. Uh, and he's been, he's the guy, if you've ever watched the, the ESPN pregame college football show, he's the guy that puts on the, the head, headgear of whatever team when he makes the picks and the crowd goes wild, right? When I was in my early 20s, I was living in California going, I was actually on staff at a, a Bible college out there. And I had a, a free airline ticket uh, that I'd gotten from a delay I had been on uh, prior. And it was my birthday, and so I decided to use my free ticket to fly from Southern California to Miami to watch Florida State play uh, in the Orange Bowl, play Miami in, in September in the Orange Bowl. And so I, I go, and uh, the, the game was on Labor Day. It was on a Monday. Uh, we enjoy the game. Florida State wins, for those who care. And then, uh, but because I didn't have any time off at my job, I had to be back at work that Tuesday morning, right? Well, because of time differences, California, East Coast, right? If I caught an early flight, you know, I'm going backwards. I'm picking up time as I go backwards in the time zones, and I could be at work Tuesday morning after being in the Orange Bowl till midnight the night before. And so that's what I did. It's kind of stupid stuff you do when you're young. And so I have a 6 a.m. flight out of Miami International. And so you have to get there a couple hours early. So I get there in the checkout counter. I mean, in the, the ticket counter, it's the thing they had back in the old days before phones and stuff. I was at the ticket counter, um, waiting to print my boarding pass. And right in front of me, this white head of hair, it's like, and I hear this voice. I was like, I know that voice. That's Lee Corso. And he's right in front of me at the ticket counter. And I, you, you, know how, you know this moment, right? You're like, do I say something? Can I, can I talk to him? Should I, should I? And I, I go back and forth. I'm, I'm nervous about it. Like, this is my hero or one of my heroes. This is like, I don't know if I could talk to him. And you're kind of debating. And I, finally, I, I, I chickened out. I was like, ah, I'm not going gonna to do it. And he gets his ticket and he goes off. And so I come up and I get, uh, get my boarding pass printed, check the luggage, do all the stuff, and start walking to my terminal. I'm kind of kicking myself. You know, I missed my chance. And lo and behold, as I'm walking to my terminal, I see over to the left, there he is sitting at his gate, all alone, 
waiting for his flight at probably 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And so I garnered the courage and I went over to him and introduced myself and uh, I made a joke of some kind or at least attempted to about a pick that he had gotten wrong the, the day before. And even, even in this, I mean, this is not like I'm talking to the king or the president or something. It's just a TV personality that like only 10% of the world knows. But I'm still like fumbling over my words. I'm awkward, right? You guys know how that feels? And I think about like even in that interaction, like it's tough for us to relate to someone who's just on a different status than us, a different level than us, right? And I, and I think about Jesus coming to earth. Why does he come in such a humble stature? I'm convinced it's because Jesus doesn't want to create any barriers for us to come to him. He wants us to be able to walk right up and say, Lord, I need you. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? I don't have a solution for my sin problem, but you do, and I need you. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter four that since then, we have a great high priest who has, look at this, he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What should we do? It says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What kind of savior do we have? Well, we have one that gets us. We have one that's lived in flesh like you and I have. We have one that knows what it's like to lose friends, to deal with heartache, to be betrayed, to be mistreated, to be on the other end of injustice, to be lied to and lied about. We have a, a savior who knows what it's like to be poor, to not, have a, uh, not even have enough money to have a place to live. We have a savior that understands everything that we go through. He comes that way so that we might come to him. Jesus left heaven to come to us. He lived on earth like us. He has sympathy and compassion on us in our weakness. And I find that many people think that Jesus is standing afar off, waving his finger at them, condemning them for the mistakes they've made, the ways they've fallen short, the things they've done wrong, the things they ought to have done that they haven't done. The Bible paints a totally different picture of Jesus. Instead of him standing there waving his finger at us, Jesus stands there saying, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't have to be afraid to approach Jesus. He's eagerly inviting us and calling us to him. What does that mean for us? It means if you need salvation. If you need to have your sin problem solved, you can go straight to him. There's no religious formality needed. There's no, uh, there's no payment due. There's no steps to take. Jesus says, just cry out to me and I'll be there. There's no barrier between you and him. You can right now, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're bearing the weight of your sin yourself, if you're carrying around guilt and shame on your own, Jesus says right now, you can come and lay that at his feet. And if you're not a believer here, maybe you're just here because it's Christmas time and you're supposed to go to church around Christmas, let me tell you, Christmas is not about Jesus in a manger and a cute little baby and frankincense and myrrh. Nobody even knows what that is. Christmas is about Jesus coming for you. Coming so he might die for you. Coming so he might have a relationship with you. 
And he offers that freely to any and all who want it. The second thing it means is that you don't have to be afraid to approach Jesus now for encouragement. If you are a Christian, you don't have to keep your distance from him. You don't have to be unsure of what to say to him. You don't have to be worried you're going to mess something up or say something wrong or how do I approach this Jesus? That's not how Jesus wants to interact with you at all. Are you downcast? Do the holidays bring up painful memories for you? Are you lonely? Do you miss someone deeply this time of year? Do the holidays bring up anxiety? Do they bring up financial worries for you? Do they bring up painful memories from your past? Jesus says, come to me with that. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you, he says. I would encourage you to come to Jesus in whatever state you're in. Don't worry about the form or, the, or the, you know, how you're going to say it. You can yell at him if you want to. He can handle it. Whatever's weighing you down, bring that to him. He cares for us, church. He comes in a humble and lowly state for us. When Gabriel announced Jesus' coming, the circumstances were incredibly humble. And we serve a Savior who chose to identify with us in our lowly state so that we could come to him. But here's even more good news this morning. Jesus is coming again. Jesus' glorious return is the second thing I want to point out to you. Jesus is coming again. Look back at our text in verses 32 and 33. Look at what Gabriel says about Jesus. It says, He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel wasn't just announcing Jesus' first coming when he came to Mary. He was also announcing Jesus' second coming. Christianity isn't just, again, about the baby in the manger. It's also about a king coming in glory. John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that this is going to happen. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to where? To myself. That where I am going, you may be also. Jesus' second coming, it's going to look nothing like his first, is it? It's going to be totally different. Whereas Jesus came in anonymity, quietly, a silent night, if you will, in a manger. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening. Just a couple of shepherds in a field got a heads up that this was happening. But other than that, it was a total secret that this happened. When Jesus comes the second time, everybody's going to know. He's going to come in glory and in power, and it's going to be loud. It's going to be visible. Jesus came in humility, as we've said. The first go around, there's going to be nothing humble about his second coming. He's coming with all the pomp, all the circumstance that is due the king of the universe. Jesus' first coming, he came to bring salvation. He came to rescue us. He came to save. He came to die on a cross for our sins. Jesus' second coming, he's coming to bring judgment. He'll come to make things right in the world. He's coming with justice. Jesus' first coming, he came as a servant, lowly, humble. Son of man did not seek to be served, but to serve, he says. The second coming, he's coming and he will be worshiped. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is something that the Advent season is uniquely positioned to help us think, think about. 
the second coming is not something we talk about a lot, is it, right? Like, do you guys walk around talking about the second coming? Does that have a real impact on your day-to-day life, right? Like, I'm the pastor here, and it doesn't affect me a whole lot, and something I want to work on. But the Advent season, uh, for all of history, has been a season when the church reminds itself not just that Jesus came one time, but that Jesus is coming again. Read this quote with me. It's slow and it's old, but it's just a really great summary of what happens. It says, we preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. For the former gave view of his patience, but the latter brings with it the crown of a divine kingdom. For all things, for the most part, are twofold in our Lord Jesus Christ, a twofold generation, one of God before the ages and one of a virgin at the close of the ages. His descents or his comings are twofold. One, the unobserved, like the rain on a fleece. The second, his open coming, which is to be. In his former advent, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger. In his second, he covers himself with light as with a garment. In his first coming, he endured the cross, despising shame. And in his second, he comes attended by a host of angels receiving glory. We rest not upon his first advent only, but look also for his second. And as at his first coming, we said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So we will repeat the same at his second, that when with the angels, we meet our master, we may worship him and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' second coming church is our great hope. We've been talking about hope all morning, we sang about it, we lit a candle. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming back. Why should we look forward to this? Why should this matter for our daily lives? What impact does this have? First, we've got to know this, that when Jesus comes back, justice is finally going to be served on this earth. We live in a world filled with injustice, amen? Some of us have personally been victims of injustice, of unfairness, of unrighteousness, People are mistreated due to their status, their wealth, their lack thereof, their race, or a myriad of other reasons. But at Jesus' second coming, he is going to punish those who deliver injustice, and he's going to make all things right. Our enemy, Satan, gets defeated at Jesus' second coming. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of dealing with Satan. Amen? I'm tired of his influence on my life. I'm tired of him pushing me one way when my soul wants to go this way. I'm tired of not living up to the standard God has for me. I'm tired of this flesh. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's going to crush the head of the serpent once and for all, and Satan will have no influence on our life anymore. Hope is coming. I've been listening to, uh, to this biography of Winston Churchill it tells a story of the, the Dunkirk rescue. And if you're a history, World War II history buff, you know this story. Perhaps you saw the movie that came out a few years ago. But in the early stages of the war, before the Americans joined the fight, the British were kind of carrying the load against Nazi Germany. And Nazi Germany was able to cut off in France a huge chunk of British troops from the main fighting force. And this 300,000 plus, I mean, that's a massive number, 300,000 plus British soldiers were trapped at a port called Dunkirk in the north of France, just across the English Channel from 
England. They've got the sea at their back, and they've got the German army marching towards them, closing in on them. A disaster is waiting because the British only have a few dozen ships available to go and get these men, the largest of which can only hold about 900 guys. And so they've got 330,000 people they need to move. They can only do them 900 at a time. The stakes are high. There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of hopelessness. The British Army undertook this massive plan they called Operation Dynamo, and they recruited hundreds of civilian boats, just guys with boats, to go across the English Channel and get these soldiers. And if you've seen the movie Dunkirk about this story, there's a scene that's just so powerful of the, the commander of the Navy that's standing on the pier at Dunkirk. And he's looking out on the horizon, and as he squints out into the distance, he sees these dots on the water. So he calls to his lieutenant and asks for the binoculars, and he looks through the binoculars out of the ocean, and he's able to see hundreds of boats coming to rescue these men. And his lieutenant says, what do you see? The commander says, home. Because these boats are coming to take them home. They managed to get all of the men off the beach in one of the most amazing military rescues of all time. And church, here we are, the people of God, surrounded on every side. In a world of pain and heartache and injustice and sin and struggle and hurt. And yet rescue is coming. And when Jesus comes back, we will be home. He's coming back and he's coming back and in glory. And so that means that we keep walking forward. We keep going. We keep living the Christian life. We don't give in to our enemy who wants us to give up. We don't resign ourselves to defeat, but instead we keep putting one foot in front of the other and living the Christian life, knowing that help is on the way. In the Bible, perseverance is the only prerequisite for making it home. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The second coming of Jesus, his second advent is meant to help us take heart. It's meant to encourage us so to keep going, to keep walking, to keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Jesus' return also means that we ought to work to bring as many people into his kingdom as possible before he comes. Right now, the gates to the kingdom of God are flung wide open. Anybody who wants to come in can come in. You put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross, and the Bible says you are saved. You can come into the family of God. But when Jesus returns, those gates close, and they close once and for all. And so while they're open, church, it's our task to grab as many people as possible and say, come on in. This season is the perfect time for that. Everybody is thinking about Jesus, whether they want to or not. You can't turn on the radio without hearing, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We're singing about Jesus. People don't even believe in Jesus. They're singing the Christmas carol. Silent. What are you doing? You don't believe that. Everybody's thinking about Jesus. Why not tell them about Jesus? Not just the cute baby Jesus, but the Jesus on a cross. This is the perfect time to invite someone to church. Goodness gracious. People don't want to have anything to do with faith. will come to church this season. 11 months out of the year, they'll tell you, no way. This month, oh, sure, sounds good. You got a Christmas tree in your sanctuary? I'm in. Let's go. Invite someone to church. We'll give you some invite cards to help you do that. Church is our duty to tell people that Jesus is coming again, and they should get in while they can. 
When Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she would give birth, the arc of history was changed forever. Gabriel foretells not just Jesus' first coming in a manger, but his second coming in glory. He tells of a Savior who would come and seek and save all who call on him. He proclaims the gospel of righteousness and peace. And this king, both humble and glorious, he invites us into his family. And all he asks that we believe. So how do we respond to such a gift? This morning we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper. That's how we'll respond to what God has done for us. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he was meeting with his disciples in the upper room and and he explained to them that the bread that he was breaking and sharing with them was to symbolize his body that was going to be broken on the cross on their behalf. And he explained to them that the cup of wine that they drank from was to symbolize his blood that he would shed to pay for their sins. And the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us is meant to cause us to do three things. It's meant first to cause us to look back, which is what we do at Christmas time. We look back at the life of Jesus. It's caused, it causes us to look back to the cross, to look back to his body broken and his blood shed on our behalf, and to remember the salvation that was purchased there. The Lord's Supper is also, though, designed to help us look inward, isn't it? The Bible says that we are to do it with reflection, with self-honesty, to see if there's any ways in which our lives are out of step with the Lord's plan for our lives, and to repent of that, to bring our lives back into alignment. The Lord's Supper is also about looking forward to Jesus' second coming, isn't it? He told his disciples, I'm not going to eat this meal again with you until when? Until I eat it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, from the very beginning, was pointing them to his second coming as well. And so here's what we're going to do. Here's your instructions. I'm going to invite the band to come back forward, come back on stage. Deacons have prepared the communion elements. They're up here. There are four tables here that you can see. What I'm going to ask you to do is this. So detailed instructions, okay? I'm going to ask you to come down these aisles right here, grab the communion elements off of these tables, and then go out to the sides, back up the outer aisle, and then back to your seat. You guys got it? You got the flow? It will go a lot smoother if you people on the front rows would go first, and just like a very orderly class, we work our way back to the room, okay? That's how we'll do it. You'll come take the bread and the juice and take it back to your seat. There's gluten-free elements on the outer tables if you need them. If, you, uh, if it would be more helpful to you for someone to bring you the elements, just lift your hand during the song, and we'll be happy to bring them to you so that you don't have to get up. Hold on to the elements, though. Don't take them until we take them all together as a group. So, band, come on forward. You guys come on up, if you would. I'm going to pray. And at the end of this prayer, I want to invite you to come, take the elements, and take them back to your seat. You can use this time. Use the song to prepare your heart. Use the time waiting to come get your elements to prepare your heart. And let's come forward, get the elements, and respond to Jesus who came once to die for sin and will come again to make all things right and new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for sending your son Jesus in a manger all those years ago to pay the price for our sin. Thank you for his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. God, I thank you for the fact and the hope of his coming return. We eagerly await that day, but until it comes, Lord, would you help us to remember your death and look forward to your return? As we take the supper this morning, would you encourage our hearts with it? Would you remind us of all that you've done for us in Christ? And Lord, would you send us out of here on mission for you 
to bring others into this family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.